You're very welcome. It's great to be with you. If you'd like to put your hand up if you haven't got a handout, and Alison will get one to you. There might be some at the end of the rows as well. Um, so keep your hand up and you'll get one. That's great. So yes, thank you for coming along. Can I ask if any of you have heard me speak on this topic before? Oh, well, I can't tell if your hands up. Put two hands up. Put two hands up if you heard me before. <laughs> so just a few. You may hear some things that you didn't log last time. And most people who've heard it, I find they pick up something different the next time. Hopefully having moved a stage along in their thinking. So for whatever reason you chose this seminar, I hope you will find something helpful to take away and it won't be adding to your clutter that you already might have. And there will of course be an opportunity for questions at the end. Okay, and if you have your handouts, I'd prefer you didn't read them during my talk. So I gave them out earlier to people if they arrived early and obviously you'll be able to listen better if they're... Okay, they have run out. Unless there's some at the end of, of a row down there, I left a few piles. They have run out. So you might have to... Any spare ones, hold them up and we'll share them. Brilliant. So the signs of clutter and hoarding are generally quite obvious to those who are around the sufferer, or if you prefer, the practitioner. And there's... there's overflow. Most cases there's homes and rooms are visual chaos. There's piles of paper on all the surfaces, overflowing storage. Alongside the visual there's some common factors. Things go missing. Time is wasted looking for the missing things and more arrives into the home on a regular basis. The languages and excuses and catchphrases that you'll hear, they are, well, it'll come in useful someday. That was fine 70 years ago. It'll come in useful some days, a real favourite. I couldn't resist it. I know where everything is, really. That cost me a lot of money. If I had more time, I know exactly where everything would go. I could make something really fun with that. I couldn't part with Aunt Dora's teapot collection. So there's habits in how we store stuff and keep stuff. And there's four main types of hoarding behaviour that I'll explore. Some hoarders, and they wouldn't like to call themselves that, of course, exhibit death several types or habits of hoarding many have a predominant one but for all hoarders there's this basic problem of more stuff coming into the house all the time and very little leaving it every kind of hoarder shops and collects and saves and gathers and many become attached to the things in their homes and they associate things with people or with experiences the resulting problems well the common problems I have found is that hoarding puts a strain on relationships, primarily with a spouse, but also with children. If a parent is a hoarder and it's chaotic all the time, if families can hardly function, if there's always nowhere to sit or put anything down, or if you're always spending this cycle of looking for things all the time. For people living alone, it can become so bad that it fits in with the diagnosable hoarding mental illness. Um, the hoarding disorder that has been recognized for about uh, four or five years and it can lead to social isolation and health and environmental issues for themselves for their families and for their carers so i think people are becoming increasingly aware of that kind of, of problem in the community or in their families but one of the issues certainly is mental health and many people don't recognize the effect that clutter has on their mental health and it's only when stuff leaves the house that a sense of relief is felt and experienced 100% of my clients will give testimony to this sense of relief and lightening 
as they part with amounts of clutter. It's also likely that hoarding or the issues that underlie our tendency to hold on to stuff can cause problems in our relationship with Jesus. As a believer, as someone who testifies to following Jesus, you may not be someone who thinks about your lifestyle and how it speaks about your faith. But there can be underlying spiritual issues, and we'll have a look at some of those and see what Scripture might have to say to us about our relationship with our stuff. I know Rick earlier on talked about uh, being set free, and sometimes we need to be set free from our stuff. For over 11 years, I have been self-employed, and I've used my administrative and organizing skills in a variety of ways. Um, But for over eight years, I've been a professional declutterer. And while I'm probably the only one in Northern Ireland, because it's taking years to catch on here, so the bulk of my domestic work is in the Greater Dublin area, and there's lots of people who do my job in America and in in, um, other parts of Great Britain, and there are a few in Dublin, but I think I'm Northern Ireland's only one. Don't leave your day job. I go into people's homes. Yes, shock horror. I go into people's homes, uh, usually after having had a chat on the phone or a couple of emails to get an idea of their situation and their problem. And often I don't know what I'm going to walk into, but I'm there to help and I have a professional attitude to it. So let me say that in my work as a declutterer, which you're all struggling to imagine, uh, it's really important that I'm not judgmental and that clients who might feel a huge amount of shame know that I'm unshockable and I won't be judging their behavior. Instead, I help them to clear their space and suggest ways to break their hoarding habits and avoid that cycle of clutter in the future. But over the last few years, I've thought about the heart of the issue and how things could and should be different if we're Christians. So let's have a look at the four main types that I have have come up with. We've got the creative multitasker, the future fearer, the custodian of history and the intellectual librarian. Oh, you've spotted yourself in there already. Okay. Somebody told me that their house was full of stuff and they hadn't identified with any of these four, so maybe I've got another chapter to write. The creative multitasker. Many hoarders are people who are into creative projects, whether it's a woman who enjoys knitting and patchwork and card making and watercolours and embroidery and beadwork, or a man who enjoys fixing gadgets, rebuilding electronics, tinkering with engines, woodworking, power tools, messing about with machines. There's a lot on their minds, both current projects and intended ones. There's a a lot also in their workspace, in their spare room, their sitting room, their garage, their attic. Everywhere you turn, there are unfinished projects, bags and bits on their way to one place or another and little space to breathe. My mother was a classic example. She would learn a new craft or skill every year. She'd buy all the tools and equipment to do the craft, put them all into those really good apple boxes because they're really strong and you have to have an extra 12 of them in the house. But most often she'd revert to two or three favourites. And clearing out her house after she died was a huge job. So I have her to thank for my crazy career. On the whole, the creative multitasker is busy and quite productive, but they're distracted. Getting things in order and finishing all those open projects never reaches the top of the to-do list. Deciding to focus on a couple of crafts and release the stuff belonging to all the others and all the materials associated with them. That would bring up cries of never and a sense of grief because they've gathered this stuff over the years. But perhaps at a stage of life where it might be necessary due to arthritis or poor sight and you can't actually do that craft anymore, it's still sitting there reminding you that you can't do it anymore. That's not so good. 
What are the underlying issues? What's the spiritual issues? What's driving the need to collect so many materials? Are you saying yes to every bag of wool and sack of fabric that somebody else in your church or group is clearing out of their homes? They'll know who to bring it to. You'll always say yes. What or who is being neglected? Some of the creative people might be spending time praying and thinking while they work, but often it tends to be a bit of me time. It's possible this person is actually afraid to be still and to explore their own feelings and the state of their heart towards God, and they're busying their life, filling their life with stuff to actually avoid things. I think there's a need for simplicity, for focus, and for putting the most important things first. So I like to talk about um, the story from Luke 10, chapter 41, included in the story of Mary and Martha. And every hospitable woman in the country always gets very shifty about this verse. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. Mary has chosen the better thing. And in the midst of all her hospitality, Martha probably wanted the, the table settings to be perfect and the sauce to be the right consistency. And she'd completely lost sight of who was in her home and the better thing that Mary had chosen to listen to Jesus while he was with them. And Jesus could have turned up dinner with no problem at all. So we are often totally distracted by busyness and missing the better thing. Because of the clamor of all these multiple demands in our heads, we're not even in a position to think about making the right choices. Like the habit of setting New Year's resolutions, which are usually doomed to failure. But we need to sit back and take a look at our lives, our stuff, our habits. What will we be remembered for? Who are we influencing? If you realise that your spiritual life is being neglected, or you could be sharing the time in doing some of this creativity as a gospel activity, and redeeming the time maybe, suggest some of the following. You could be praying for the person who will be receiving the item you make, whether it's a grandchild or a, a refugee or someone in some other country you'll never meet and praying into the projects that you're you're working on you could be listening to christian audiobooks or sermons or podcasts from new horizon while you work on your projects you could spend time with someone who's lonely so if you're somebody who's a knitter or crochet or um some work that actually transports you can go and visit somebody that you've been planning to visit and bring your your work with you if you're me and you're a card maker it really doesn't transport well or you could use craft times as an outreach to your local community. Or maybe joining in the local men's shed to influence your community for good and to maybe mentor someone or teach somebody skills in the process. God has gifted many of us with creativity. We're made in the image of a creator God, so it's an aspect of God in us. And there's joy in the idea and the planning and gathering the materials together and in the resulting article. It is an exciting and a blessed thing to exercise this creativity, but let's do it for God's glory and not forget the most important things. Here we have a sausage and rasher nativity scene. You're missing this, folks. So this is creativity taken to the nth degree. I'm, I'm amused. This is one of the reasons, again, when it comes to some of the younger people or maybe people my age as well, to reduce the amount of social media you're on. So I've decided not to be on Instagram or Twitter. I can't express myself in 50 characters or less, obviously. Uh, and stay well clear of Pinterest where this kind of thing comes up and I accidentally signed up to it recently and I got 18 new ideas. I'm going, this is why I didn't sign up to it. I don't need 18 bright ideas before breakfast. I have enough to do. And the fact that this sausage and rasher machine is ra nativity scene is made with pork mainly is a bit weird as well. But my, my favourite part about it is that it won't last till next Christmas. 
Now the second type is the future fearer. And some hoarders live in fear of the future, but they wouldn't say that in so many words. Some of them were alive in, uh, or born into families who had known the Second World War and times of rationing. So it's been ingrained in them. Keep that, it'll come in useful someday. Or they might have known times of illness or abandonment in their family or unemployment. And because of these experiences, they keep things that might be useful in the future. So there's all these fears of running out, a fear of a national catastrophe. There's all sorts of anxiety-filled events that could befall you, so you keep everything. They buy things that they feel they will need or use, especially when they see them at a good price. You've got to get a bargain. Often never realising that they already have more than they'll ever need or use. Watch out for little bad idea. I have some clients who are particularly little fans and they go, oh, I went for two tins of tomatoes, I came home with a chainsaw. You know. So it's all there. It's quite good quality stuff. It's very good prices and they change it every two weeks. So every two weeks you have a possibility of st stacking up on your garden stuff, your stationery stuff, your craft stuff, your sports stuff. Lethal. Be careful. Okay, the future fear. All this. What if? Why? Worry, worry. Inflation, cost. What if somebody dies? What if? What if? And of course, when things like electrical gadgets break down or get replaced, they never dump the old one. The attics and sheds are bursting with out-of-date computers and printers and lawnmowers and kitchen appliances. I did hear a story of one lady who, who died and when her attic was assessed, there were 17 broken kettles in it. So you'd, re you'd think you'd realise by the time you put up number five, I haven't found anybody who's fixing kettles safely. I thought they could be turned, being the creative multitasker, I thought they could be turned into a piece of public art for a roundabout and they could have been a cup of tea, the cup of tea roundabout. And so much of this behaviour is surrounded with worry and fear and anxiety. You think about the Y2K time, oh, the millennium, we're not going to have any food, stash up, up all sorts of things, all these fears. Um, I was clearing a house for a client who was downsizing. Both husband and wife seem to be particularly fond of those felt circles that you put on chair legs and tables. So there were over 20 packets of these in various sizes in several places in the house. And she admitted that they tended to buy them whenever they saw them and they rarely ever replaced them on the chairs and tables. So it's a funny example, but from a fear that the floors will get scratched, you have floors to be walked on and to be used, that's what they're there for, to a fear that these things would no longer be available so you keep buying more and to a fear of running out of them, which isn't going to be very likely if you're not replacing them. But it's that fear behind the behaviour. Elsewhere in that house, the fire lighters and the fireside companion set had been kept, even though the last fireplace was removed 17 years before. Why? Uh, recently, I've been moving this same lady for the second time, but into a, a care home, and she still has 50 boxes of stuff. We've been through everything, and she's still keeping 50 boxes of stuff. I'm not sure where it's going to go. So what does this tendency say about those of us who are believers? This passage from Matthew 6 is very familiar to us, I'd say. Do not be anxious about your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink or what you shall put on, for your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. This scripture is so well known to most of us, but do we live by it? Do I? Do you? Explore your trust in God. Is he trustworthy? Do we say that we trust him and trust in him, but maybe that's only for our salvation or when it comes to the time of our death, and on a day-to-day -day basis, we are not exercising that trust. Can we take him at his word? He promises to provide for our needs, and these promises in the scriptures came to people 
who live far simpler lives than those of us who have stocked cupboards and freezers and have no idea of the reality of praying for our daily bread and what that would look like in our walk of faith. I know a number of people who in their later years as couples usually have just downsized from houses into apartments before their health drove them to that decision. And there's no doubt they found it difficult to do, but they've enjoyed the increased simplicity of a smaller uncluttered home to enjoy without the burden of maintenance and recognising that a certain stage in their life has passed and they maybe won't be having 17 of the family for, for dinner twice a year. There were decisions to be made but they could make them in their full minds with the satisfaction of being able to give away or pass on things if they weren't using them anymore and they weren't needed. But there's no regret for the things that have been passed on, often to charity shops as their children did not want them or didn't have room for them or lived too far away to ship them. While many future fearers might question this modern disposable society that we live in and be horrified at the waste and the carelessness that, and that nobody fixes anything anymore, they maybe haven't identified that this modern generation hold things more lightly and that surely is biblical as well. So trust God, hold things more lightly. Realize how much we have. Live simply so that others may simply live. What would that adage look like? What that, would that proverb or idea look like for us? Realize that worrying cannot add a day to our life but the reverse as it tells us again in that passage. Consider everything as a gift. A lot of this starts with uh, recognizing that everything is a gift from God and that we don't need to stockpile and uh, be, be hungry for more and then learning contentment with what we have and recognizing the effect that the clutter has on us. Hold things more lightly. What would that be to you? It might be that you go out and you're wearing a scarf or something and somebody says, oh, that's a lovely scarf. I said, here, have it. I have another 60 at home and believe me, you probably do. Trust God. So the third type is the custodian of history. For some hoarders, their stuff tells a story of lives past and the old days. Some of them have helped to clear a relative's home, particularly their parents maybe. They've kept so many photographs. They've kept a collection of war memorabilia, ornaments, family heirlooms, antiques, furniture that was made by great uncle Robert and Aunt Dora's teapot collection. They have their own lives symbolized in travel souvenirs, match programs, photographs, children's paintings and cards. Everything has a story and their mind is filled with the stories and the memories that each item holds. Can you imagine how full your head is? To them, the guilt of passing on or giving away something that belonged to somebody else holds them in a paralysis of inactivity while they're just surrounded by this mountain of clutter that's still there maybe many years after uh, somebody has, has died. If they were to let go of items from their own lives and story, it would feel like a denial that something had happened or the loss of a limb, so things become very important. The bottom line here is sentimentality. We need to ask ourselves, are we living in the past? Are we holding tight to things that are passing and past and have had their day? Or are we living out our faith in the present, making the most of today's opportunities, making the most of every moment? Undoubtedly, there is a place for story represented by symbol. We need to look no further than the Lord's Supper, with the body and blood being symbols of what Christ was sacrificing for us. But these reminders around us need to represent what God has done in our lives, rather than just being fragments of our earthly lives. The people of Israel were commanded to retell their story of God's deliverance to children and to children's children and to celebrate the feasts to remember. Whether it was the Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles, 
But perhaps each feast is not required to have a range of table settings and decorations and fr- a frantic calendar of events like our Christmases have become. So many things that actually make us thankful when Christmas is over. And by the time church and family and work and friends have all been fitted in, there's actually no time for that nativity, be it the sausage and potato one or the reflecting on the real one. Story has been replaced by stuff and busyness and there's no space for genuine remembering and genuinely living our life each day. Of course there is a place for family heirloom, for things that were precious to those who went before us, be it jewellery or furniture, but you've got to keep perspective and a questioning of what our motives and idols are in the process and it's important to do that. There's also, I think, the issue of identity. Are we in danger of getting our identity in all this stuff rather than in our place as children of God? Is it our forebears, our ancestry, is that who we are? Our experiences of this world, the jobs that we've had, the, the farewells, the children we've had and what they've done, all sorts of things like that, rather than our relationship with Jesus and our growth in that relationship. It's the memories and history and story of our lives rather than God's gospel story promising us a future with hope. So our fourth type is the intellectual librarian. So if you haven't recognized yourself so far, perhaps you're the person who loves the written word and there's books and paper cuttings and recipes and more books and magazines and maps and it's all becoming a fire hazard around you. These people will excuse or explain their gathering of print under an intellectual aura. I love books. There's so much to know and explore. We bought the complete Encyclopedia Britannica when the children went went to grammar school. Believe me, it's not worth anything now, I'm afraid. I bought this one in a second-hand bookstore in Cambridge, and I must get round to reading that. But as with other hoarders, they'll not be able to use them or find them or even know what they have unless they're stored in an orderly fashion. So I go into homes, everybody's homes, they have these bookshelves, they're about yay high, and there's books nice vertically arranged, they might be arranged by height, or they might be a a bunch from the same series. Then there's the books across the top horizontally, then there's the ornaments in front of the books, then there's the coffee table books in front of the whole lot, and there's a sort of a a battlement, or a, a, what do you call those things that hold up spires and things, up each side of the bookshelf, there's this tower of paperbacks as well. So the whole thing looks a sight, and if you have a book in there you're really not sure if you do i don't necessarily recommend building more bookshelves but i do recommend a clear out if you've read and you love whodunit murders there's nothing worse than picking up a book getting to chapter 24 and remembering whodunit so pass them on to somebody else um and listen out for a, a better means of organizing if it's something else maybe the recipes or the magazine pieces people keep things from magazines really people say what do you do with magazines i said i don't buy them so if you've got a project going on and you're going to do up the kitchen, then you buy some of those magazines for that period. But there's no point carrying on buying more of that kind of thing if you're not going to be using it. It's really hard to file articles of those kind of things and be able to retrieve them when you need them. So organizing all those things, the recipes, the piles of cuttings. Again, if you're keeping cuttings out of newspapers, they're probably in about five or six different places. Get out a proper scrapbook or an old photo album and put them together so that somebody can pick it up and say, oh, there's when Johnny had, his, had the, the, the prize cow at the Balmoral show. There's when we got the, the new tractor. And it was that year, because I've written it down here. And it, whatever, it's the, the dancing classes or the competition, whatever it is, that it's actually put together in a way that somebody can lift it up and realize and recognize what's been going on. So properly scrapbook and properly um, kept together with the best of the photographs. So 
organize it all and reduce the volume and think about why you're keeping stuff. Um, what about holding lightly? Are you prepared to lend your books to somebody else? Or have you a bit of a it's mine thing and you don't let them go? You can keep a, a log of some of the books you found helpful, write down the author and, what, and the title and stuff and what was about, and then pass the book on to somebody who you know might be needing to read about that. And if you buy a lot of books, then support local bookstores or here at New Horizon rather than Amazon. Think local community over price. So are you prizing intellectual knowledge over heart issues? Is there an intellectual vanity or snobbery that should be challenged or redeemed? That covers the four types, but I have other things to say. So it is a modern phenomenon, of course. Um, for the most part, uh, older houses were built with very little storage because people didn't have loads of stuff. If people had one of the wardrobes with the pole that went from back to front and hit, fit about five hangers, if you had five sets of clothes, then you were rich indeed. But that's all changed. And the only people who brought souvenirs home from holiday were the fabulously wealthy people whose homes we now pay the National Trust to go and have a look at. It's all changed since the 50s and 60s, sort of post-war period, people starting to go on holidays, and now into this, this century where all the time society is telling us to desire more, to have the latest, the ones with the labels, to buy more, be the first one with the new improved version. We're being moulded into the way and culture of the world all the time, and sometimes we're not aware and we don't realise we're becoming ensnared by it. Advertising tells us what we need. It's a complete change of definition from that Matthew passage earlier. It tells us what we must have. I hate this must have thing. And it tells us that we're worth it. Hello, as Christians, we were worth Jesus shedding his blood on the cross. We need to see where we get our identity and where we get our worth from and check ourselves the whole time because the world is influencing those, those views of ourselves. It's so contrary to our biblical faith, so beware of the lies in advertising particularly. And what are some of the deeper issues? Some of the things that might be contrary to our discipleship of Christ, and here's some to consider. There is a sense of un unease, a lack of peace, niggling away in our subconsciousness. It's almost part of the human condition. As I said, the advertisers often get in there first. We're made to feel we're missing out. Many of us have feelings of insecurity. Again, it's part of our fallen human existence. And we often try and fill that up by keeping bits and pieces or, or rewarding ourselves with things. Our security shouldn't fa be found in all these temporary things. And we know that. If you think of the wonderful line thou my soul's shelter and thou my high tower the high towers across the irish landscape they've been there for centuries they may not be there for more centuries but they've been there a long time there's something about the security of that high tower and being secure in him rather than trying to find our security and our identity and our our worth in in stuff jesus said i will never leave you nor forsake you we need to really apply these truths to our lives we might lack a sense of identity. We've had a look at that earlier on. And often people place a very high value on their stuff, which can damage relationships with the family and with God. I'll never forget my mum, who, although she wasn't in the best of health at the time, she wasn't dying. She said to me, I'm worried about dying. So I thought this was going to be the opening of a spiritual conversation I'd wanted to have. But she continued by saying, I'm worried about my stuff. She wanted me to get into the house before my brother and save her stuff, assuming that I'd have a higher value on it rather than him he would have got a skip the fact that she'd spent so much money down the years i did have a higher value on it and i tried to sell some of the stuff to recoup some of the vast amount of spending but it was sad this life reduced to stuff and things and she'd often chosen those over relationships compared to visiting uh, wickliffe friends in in um, mali years ago where we were welcomed by one of the translators into his 
family yard. We sat on logs in the yard. And the next day he appeared with one of, one of his ten chickens to honour us as visitors to the village. They had very little and we were greeted with such generosity. It was a bit of a shock when we discovered the chicken wasn't dead yet, but that was another story. So are we gathering and stockpiling or are we giving away and generously letting go of stuff? Take time to consider what it is you get your sense of identity from. Then there's issues of mammon, the great biblical idea of mammon materialism. For the most part, it's not a big issue in, in many hoarders' lives. By and large, the people who are most afflicted come buy stuff. They gather stuff. They support sales of work. They get hand-me-downs and inheritances and clear-outs from other people. They might support charity shops or car boot sales, whatever. There's no discipline about what enters the home or what give, is given a place in our lives. Um, but that said, many women in particular, now, and I have an uncle who really can't survive a day unless he goes out to the shops at least once, uh, when my aunt would prefer that he got organised to get the hall painted. But many women do go shopping as a pastime, men as well sometimes, but they often shop in packs. There's sisters, daughters and friends who go along. And in spite of the best intentions to merely be a window shopper this Saturday, somehow they come home with bags of new purchases. The sustainability of the planet is at stake as we consume and collect, rather than considering the benefits, both spiritually and environmentally, of a simpler lifestyle. There's some ideas for you on your handouts about changing some of those behaviours too. Shame and fear... But don't read it while I'm speaking. <laughs> Shame and fear of others' judgments. I'm so bossy. Okay. Uh, for many who suffer under the burden of gathering, there is a sense of shame. Now, this is what I'm finding is the issue in Northern Ireland. What goes alongside shame? Pride, shame. And I'm discovering people cannot imagine having a professional person into their home to deal with their mess, their stuff. So there's this big sense of shame, sometimes quite deeply felt. And of course, if, if it is a huge problem, then it's affecting the people around you and you recognize it. But you can't really get started on sorting it out. Those who experience a sense of shame often become reluctant to have friends and visitors in their home and then they become isolated sometimes. Some people might continue to entertain by stuffing everything into one room or a few corners or throwing those, one of those really useful throws over the, hop, the lo top of the whole lot so it can't be seen. But they sort of wave their hand nonchalantly at it on the way past. But they are terrified because things are going to go missing that you'll never see again. So, And I know a few men who've built extra sheds and it does make me think of the story in the Bible. Build more sheds for more stuff. The experience of many who've had some help, usually offered from family or friends, is that it often ends in tears or strained relationships because folk who are related often will come and say, you should be ashamed of yourself. And what are you doing with all this? And so obviously when I go into people's homes, that's not the kind of language I use. And I've discovered that I've, as I've become known by my friends as a declutter, some of them don't want to have me in their homes, but I'm not actually that interested in looking to see what people have and what they're keeping but down the years I've seen the effect it can have on people and as a professional I, I know I have to be unshockable non-judgmental or else the battle is lost at the start so idolatry is one of the other things I want to talk about here from a spiritual point of view the bottom line is a concept of idolatry and idolatry is in essence the direction of our heart God commands us to love him above all else. Everything that competes for his place as Lord of our lives is an idol or is in the process of becoming one. Many of these things are intrinsically good. Family, children, friends, food, church activity, self-image and self-care, bodies that we were told to care for, objects of memory and history that mean something to us. But any of these things can usurp his place in our hearts. 
And again, these familiar verse, verses, sub, they summarize it perfectly. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. From Matthew 6. The great unburdening then. For the majority of my clients, as I said, this sense of a burden lifted from them as they begin to clear their lives of excess stuff. It's expressed from the first day to the first hour. There's undoubtedly a psychological reaction to being surrounded on every side by things that clutter your, your space, your visual area. They're demanding your attention. They're on the to-do list that never gets written or gets lost under the other four to-do lists. They're shouting stories at you, stories of grief very often. And there is a time and a space after bereavement where it's not easy to deal with the stuff. But there also comes a time when it's the right time to start clearing things out of your life, keeping the things you love best or the things that have the best memories, but not everything. Our minds cope with this by making it into wallpaper. So I've had people who've said, oh, I forgot I had a bicycle in my sitting room because they've walked past the stuff. It's all too much. And our minds have just covered it like wallpaper as if it's part of the part of the walls. And it helps to protect us from the overstimulation of all the stuff. But it doesn't minimalize the actual effect that it has on our psyche and our mental health. One of my favorite hymns of all times has to be this one. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. And as I said, Rick talked about this morning, the whole setting, be, setting free, being set free of stuff. And we can be owned. Do we own our stuff or does our stuff own us? Having said earlier that pure materialism might not be the main greed at the center of a hoarding problem, this verse in Luke reminds us of the danger. When he spoke to the crowd, Jesus said, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A person's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And I've found in my own journey with Christ that I need to assess on a regular basis the things that are holding me captive and enslaving me. I cannot follow him more nearly and more dearly if I'm being held back. It might be issues of unforgiveness, it might be issues within, within work or something I'm choosing to spend my time doing, or it might be the stuff around me. So I'd love to recommend that discipline of assessment to you as you, as you go back and look afresh at your stuff. Second Corinthians 7 tells us, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting ourselves out of reverence for God. So yes, the great unburdening. Take time to assess the things that might be holding you captive. Imagine the positives of dealing with the stuff. Ask for help from someone you trust. Act. Clear the clutter. Start doing the clearing out and feel the freedom and release from it. And if you recognized yourself in any of the four types that I mentioned, here's a suggestion of a new focus. For the creative multitasker, worship the creator who can sustain a million projects at once. And most of us are unfinished projects, of course. For the future fearer, trust God for your future. Fear not. If you're someone who worries and worries and worries, this is a, a very ungodly behavior. God has promised us so much and freedom from worry is part of that. Work on that um, control that worry has in your life and see if your storing up of stuff is part of that. For the custodian of history, let him be the custodian of your past and present because he has the future in his care as well. And for the intellectual librarian, make his story and his word in the Bible be your number one read. Okay. So you have an opportunity to ask questions. Now, I sometimes find people are embarrassed to ask questions, but it's really good to get it rolling. And uh, if you'd like to ask questions or um, 
Alison might gather up the questions and we'll repeat them for the recording. Yes, if you have a question, um, I need to repeat it for the recording so that Gwen can um, address it and it's recorded. The question is, what would be the first type of mess that you would tackle when you're beginning to declutter? Well, I often suggest that drawer. So every house has that drawer, at least one of those drawers, which is full of all sorts of bits and pieces. And somewhere else in the house, they might have smartphone boxes. Now, you don't have to buy loads of storage. Smartphone boxes are brilliant at subdividing drawers, and you can put lots of little things together in them, or batteries, or things that naturally belong together. But people keep a whole lot of bits and pieces for things, and rarely have the ability to hold in their heads, oh, that little piece is off that particular toy and it needs to be fixed. If it doesn't get fixed there and then, and all these bits get gathered and there's paper clips and there's buttons and there's coins and there's loads of things. So tackle a drawer first and that'll feel, feel good. And one of the main things, of course, is having a place for everything and everything in its place. So having organizing as part of it is really important. And if things are in multiple places, then they need to be brought together to realize, first of all, how much you have and then to decide how, what you're keeping and how to organize that. People often ask about wardrobes as well. And I've had one woman saying she was a bit exhausted because she had four wardrobes in the house and two were upstairs and two were downstairs. So by the time she was going out somewhere, she was exhausted. And kind of go, you have too much stuff. So yes, getting, getting and, and that can be overwhelming. I've heard people say, well, I'll take everything out of the wardrobe. I'll put it all on the bed. They take one look at that. They go down and make a cup of tea and they come back to bed at half past nine at night and they can't get into the bed. This is why you either need help or you need ideas like I'll take seven things out of the wardrobe today or I'll look at this particular department of clothes and decide put them all together and get rid of you know half of them whatever it might be so sometimes the jobs are too overwhelming which is why then it's good to have somebody else working with you any more questions tips when you want to declutter and there's somebody else in the house and they're not prepared to change that was my question this is an issue that comes up again and again And if you are living with someone who's a Christian, you've got a few more extra appeals to go down that way. So actually challenging them from the scriptures, if that's part of it. For people who are really bad at this, they may never change this side of eternity. It's a little bit of a a struggle. I've met somebody else where I spoke and she said she divorced years ago because she could not live with it and felt so much guilt. But then felt very relieved to hear, you know, it's a tricky, tricky situation. It can be very difficult to live with. I have worked in houses, I've gone into situations, I've gone into places with um, where people are trying to live with a tower belonging to the husband on one side of the room, which is, we're only allowed to touch my stuff. Very difficult. Um, and I've heard about it again and again as I speak. So I think one of the things is to appeal on the behalf of your own mental health. Say, I need two rooms in the house that doesn't have your stuff all over the place. So can we try and retrieve your stuff into this, you know, these rooms and at least have the kitchen and this sitting room or this family room that isn't filled with stuff. So trying to, to push the tide back uh, so that you don't have it surrounding you all the time because it is doing your mental health havoc. So that's that's it. And if you've got the possibility of, of appealing to the Christian aspect of it as well and actually saying, you know, do you think you might have a problem here? Is your stuff owning you? And trying to have those conversations. Um, sometimes, again, it can be quite hidden to other people and they don't know that the problem is in your house. But it can be very real and... Um, uh, one of the clients I worked with, their adult, her adult daughter, um, 
couldn't bear to come into the house anymore. She says, Mum, I'll meet you for lunch, I'll meet you for coffee, but I'm not crossing the threshold again. I can't bear it. This lady probably was one of my major fails. She was a widow about 38 years and had had um, inherited stuff from about four other aunts and uncles and the house was filled with stuff and she wouldn't part with things. So in her bedroom, you know, in front of wardrobes that hadn't been opened for years, there were piles of boxes. At the bottom of one of those piles of boxes, there had been an uncle who was a taxidermist and there was some mouldy rabbit fur in the box and she still questioned whether we should be throwing this away. And so you might have people who've kept all their shoes, they're under their bed, they're sleeping in, there's mildew on them, they're actually a health hazard. You've got all sorts of issues that start piling up there. So yeah, this was certainly an estrangement for this daughter who couldn't bear to cross into the house again. And it'll be there when the lady dies and she'll have to deal with it then. Any more questions? A question for Gwen on a personal issue. Did you ever find anything of great value when you did declutter? You have things like TV programs. So I years ago decluttered my life of TV. I don't watch TV because I can remember every jingle from every ad from my teenage years. I'm a bit on the spectrum. So you have think these TV programs, Treasures in the Attic and the like of that, telling you that you've got something of great value. Or you have the hoarders programs. And I rather say that they do my advertising for me because nobody's quite as bad as those people. But they recognize, oh, I have a problem. And perhaps there's somebody out there who can help. So the idea that you're going to find something really valuable, usually you know if in your family there was something really valuable because there was either a row that it cost too much money or it has a story attached to it. So it has something of, of that value. And you can find very easily on the internet if something is of value. But for the most part, it's not usually worth much and nobody even in the family might want it. So I have to be very careful. I'm not a professional valuer or whatever else. And I have to go by people's guidance and let them make decisions. So somebody I was working with um, recently had um, signed books by um, an Irish author and poet, Patrick Kavanagh, and they felt they were valuable and they got a, a valuer in and then they decided to keep them. And then they thought, no, actually, they're worth quite a bit. We'll sell them. So, so that kind of idea, something comes up like that. Uh, and again, things like China, whatever else, if they've got one chip or whatever, they're usually not worth worth much. The crystal and people all got these really expensive wedding presents and they've never used them because they're too good to use. So that's a whole generation of people. Fortunately, that's not the way things are going nowadays, but a whole generation of people who had all the stuff that was too good to use. And then you're dead and buried and nobody's interested in it because linen is far too hard to launder. And the crystal is, yeah, kind of going to have a family row if you break one of them. So you're worth it. Enjoy them. If you have those things, you are worth it. Just use them, enjoy them and enjoy the, the crystal and use it because there's no point not doing so. So that whole preciousness of things being too good to use and people used to keep the best room or whatever for when the minister came to visit uh, that idea. So, you know, use the things that are gifts to you in your, in your life and not have this up on a pedestal idea. But as Christians, if we don't value most of all our discipleship, our walk with God and our, our faith, and what he has done for us, then we're kind of sunk. So it is sort of the, the aspects of, of what's valuable to us. Any more questions? In your experience, Gwen, is it possible to break hoarding habits? I think um, for most people, except for those who do have the diagnosable hoarding disorder, and they are very hard to change, very hard to break that. But for a lot of people who've just got into a crazy place, um, especially when working with clients, they have recognised what their issues are. And it's lovely to go back to people and say, oh, I haven't bought anything for, for months now. I said, I realised how much I had and what my particular habits were. They've stopped doing that. Or um, 
they've changed the pattern in the family of not giving gifts that are stuff and done their best to change to experiential gifts or vouchers or something you want to do or particularly doing things together as a family or with grandchildren families who get swamped by getting too many presents for their kids and they haven't got room in the house for them instead maybe having the grandparents say i'm going to put 100 quid in the accounts and take the kids to the pantomime every christmas so we have a family tradition that's experiential as well as storing up for the future because they all have too much and the grandparent wants to see the children playing with the present that they bought them so the giving is all about the giver or you have the sister-in-law who always says i never see you wearing those earrings i bought you all about the giver so watch out if you're that kind of giver you think oh they never like the presents i buy that's because you shouldn't be choosing things for people very often so um and this is sort of some of the behaviors that happen and you end up swamped with things that you you don't want and you feel guilty the guilt of gifts the things you've been given and that was a gift from my mother well she probably gave you you know another 60 things and you probably like some of those so get rid of the ones that you don't enjoy and you don't like but trying to change some of those patterns that are swamping people with stuff and uh yeah and then so pe- i have seen people i've worked with who've changed those patterns some some people will say oh it was great you sorted out my house three years ago but i've fallen into a few bad habits again she's the little the little one actually she had me back this spring and i'm going you have a completely wrong assessment of the amount of cleaning you're going to do in your house plus you actually have a cleaner who brings her own stuff so we're dealing with all this stuff that she'd keep buying in, in little and some of the, the sort of habits and you kind of go stay away she's the closest shop to my house i said you don't have to buy something every time you're there you know so it's sometimes uh, recognizing again what are the, the the worst habits and just loving people love to have their freer space now, i'm not a minim- minimalist i have far too much stuff in my house in case anybody thought i might be a minimalist it's all very organized but it's n- not minimal and you just start recognizing it's so much nicer to have a bit of clear space and a lot of people will say i love going to stay in the hotel do you know why because there's not much stuff in the hotel room and it's not your stuff and very often when i come back from a trip away i'll come back and I go there's too many things on the windowsill here or there's too much stuff in this cupboard and i'll do a clear out because i've spent time away from the stuff <laughs> so it is possible to break the habits unless you're a diagnose diagnosable um case and i have seen um a couple of those and it's it's tough going i've heard about quite a few of those and the people who are trying to live in those situations or care for somebody whose house is so cluttered that it's unhealthy and they're unable to access the the support and the aid that they need to live in their home safely thank you any more question is how do you get rid of things that have a sentimental value well let me suggest uh first of all that there's ways of keeping things that are slightly less cluttered so if they are things that the children made so a lot of mums become very sentimental when the babies and children arrive and there's the first pair of shoes and there's all these things um so in one house i've been in they got a beautiful job done with the children's first shoes they put up the shoes in a big they spent money on it It was probably a good christmas present to get a framed beautiful three-dimensional frame with the children's shoes and the dates of the children's um birth or the day they were walking whatever it was so a lovely way to keep and display rather than having tucked away in a clark's box somewhere in the back cupboard you have lots of digital ways to preserve the children's artwork and you have to remember that everything your child creates it's a stage of their growing of how they learn to hold pencils and learn to paint between the lines or whatever it might be but they're not all a work of art that's going to be worth something huge one day and you need to watch the level of sentimentality with that but there's apps that you can actually record all your it'll sort all your different individual children's work and you can keep it all digitally and back it up um so 
there's there's some certainly some ways of photographing stuff rather than keeping the stuff so again I've a dear friend and she kept all her little girls dresses and I'm going no no you have photographs of the child wearing the dress and having a lovely day you don't need to keep the dress when she's now 23 so huge these sort of things and you kind of go no you have to so replace the dress with the photographs replace the, the photographs and the artwork with digital storage there are ways certainly of doing it but you know keep questioning yourself and just say are you living are you living in the past all the time are you you know you're looking at this brat of a teenager who won't do more than grunt at you and you're thinking oh you were so sweet you produced all those lovely pictures and that lovely pottery thing upstairs that looks like it's twisted and this sort of stuff you know so you're living in the past where you now have a, a different human in front of you and you're wishing they were small again so that kind of um idea of just you know catching yourself on about today and enjoying today people are all talk about things like mindfulness, but there's nothing new under the sun, as it tells us in Ecclesiastes. And God gives us each day as a fresh day and a fresh start and a fresh hour and moment to live. And if we're all the time looking backwards or worrying about the future, um, and we need to learn to live in the day and to appreciate today's blessings today. Hope that's helpful. Any more? We make this our last question. Are people that have clutter are people who can't say goodbye to the past? I think that could be quite a good assessment. Um, and for various reasons, they might be afraid to look to the future. So yes, it often can be. And as I said, there's a time when grieving comes, when bereavement comes. And if you don't, as Christians, recognize how our lives are and the hope for the future and that can be very different whether you have family with faith and family without faith but either way you have to move on through that in your walk with with Christ in your theology of of the scriptures and um and try to just keep less and and look towards that wonderful future that's ahead of us a future with hope and a place with more treasures than we can ever imagine and than the bible could even describe so thank you thank you for listening today i hope you found it helpful and you can bring some hints away with you as well. Thank you.